Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, so now you know what's ahead of us. Hopefully you read, uh, as the pastor has recommended, uh, ahead and uh, had a little four sight into what was coming. Back in January, we had a, a little staff, uh, Ryan, Brent, and I got away. We went to Richmond, Virginia, to the IMB headquarters. That's inconsequential except for the fact that on our way there, uh, driving through the mountains of West Virginia, I believe Ryan was asleep in the back, uh, but Brent asked, uh, you know, conversation started, turned to me and said, hey, uh, if you were to ever to write a book, what what would it be about? Well, the reality is I've actually thought in my adult life about writing three different books at different times. First one I would have called From Discipline to Desire. It would have been on spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, reading, God's word, meditation, uh, and so forth. There's a great class on Wednesday night right now that uh, Nate Wright is leading that focuses on some of those uh, spiritual disciplines that are less celebrated, uh, based out of the ruthless elimination of hurry, I highly recommend that class. But the premise of this book being that as we implement this self-discipline through the power of the Spirit into our lives, that it would grow spiritual desires, from discipline to desire. That's book number one. That's not the one I told him about. Uh, book number two, uh, I thought about writing a book called Imago Dei. Imago Dei is the Latin word for the image of God. And particularly Dei, spelled D-E-I, I would take a uh, springboard off of that and address modern cultures, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now for some of you, it, based on your workplace and where you're involved, belonging gets tagged onto the end. But particularly, we as Christians believe that everybody is created in the image of God, and so, therefore, uh, it should have an impact in the way we view diversity, equity, and inclusion, about bringing a Christian worldview to that hot-button topic of the world today. But that's not the book I mentioned either. Uh, Brent asked, if you ever write a book, what would you write a book about? I said, well, I'd write a book on sex. Uh, well, uh, I said, I don't have a working title yet, but I would, uh, the subtitle would be, God's design for sex to make us healthy, happy, and holy. 
I would take modern and historic science to show the health benefits, that should be your healthy, physical, mental, emotional benefits, springboard into that to how uh, it is designed for pleasure to bring us happiness. We see this specifically already in scripture when we think about rejoicing in the wife of your youth, that there is a joy that comes with marriage and then for our holiness and holiness bringing us directly to the passage where we're going to spend our time this morning. So uh, we got a task ahead of us and we need some help. So let's pray. Father, we know that all scripture is given for our profit and benefit. That it is from your inspiration that it is for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness. And Lord, as we look at what Paul has to say this morning, that you would guide us down this path. As we tread this often challenging topic, that you would teach us about the gifts that you have given and how they are for our good and for our benefit. May all that we say honor you. May you be with the teacher this morning that he would not get distracted, that he would stay on topic, and that he would say nothing more than what the word teaches us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is being very tactical in this passage this morning, and it would be wrong for us to develop a theology of marriage strictly out of 1 Corinthians 7. So I want to give you a little bit broader picture this morning on marriage. I borrowed this from uh, a pastor, John MacArthur. He gives us seven purposes for marriage. They're alliterated. They'll be on the screen, and you can write these down if you wish, if you're taking notes today. But particularly marriage is first and foremost uh, initiated for procreation. We have rejoiced this morning in seeing the be fruitful and multiply is our, with our baby dedications. And that's right out of Genesis chapter 1. That is his command, be fruitful and multiply. Secondly, we see that marriage is for partnership. God says in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, a partner. We are a partnership in marriage. Thirdly, marriages serve as a picture Perhaps one of the most famous chapters in the Bible on marriage is from Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. There are times that maybe we get to this backwards, because it's important to note that it is Christ's relationship that the marriage is to learn from, not that we look at marriage to learn about Christ and the church. We are broken and sinful, and so uh, our marriages aren't perfect, and we can't say that our marriage is how we learn about Christ, but rather we look to Christ as to how we can learn and apply his love within our marriage. We continue in Ephesians 5, and we see how marriage can serve as provision, uh, and also we, we husbands can serve as protection, protectors. Very clear in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, we see how marriage is intended for pleasure. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife 
of your youth. But lastly, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 7, we see how marriage, and sex in particular, is intended for our purity. Have you ever asked someone a question and they came back with a lot of words but didn't answer your question? Imagine that's how some of the Corinthians were feeling as the letter that Paul has written is being read in the churches there because we learn that they had written to Paul first. They'd asked a number of questions. And Paul writes back and he goes on a little bit of a tirade through the first six chapters based on some things he's heard from Chloe uh, telling them about telling about the church, and he's addressing some issues that he has been made aware of. And that's the first six chapters of Corinthians. And so those that are, but I sent Paul a question. Why isn't he answering my question? Like he's going off on all these tangents and not addressing what I've asked for. Well, in this case, chapter 7 marks that pivot. That's why we see in verse 1, he says, uh, now concerning the matter about which you wrote, and then there should be in your modern translation some quotation marks there, maybe a colon and quotation marks to say, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is a question or a statement that they had sent to Paul, and they're looking for affirmation, for validation that Paul would agree with this. They feel they have taken some moral high road, and uh, but Paul is going to turn this around a little bit and set them straight. And while we might initially think this sounds like a good statement like, and affirm this, well, we'll see how they were applying this. I don't know that there's a modern Corinth in our culture today. Uh, particularly, the pagan Corinthians were pursuers of hedonism, particularly as it pertain to things of sexual nature. One significant example of this we just saw last week, chapter 6, about where prostitution was brought in, how there were church members who were off at the temple prostitutes. So the pagan culture of the day not only had legalized prostitution, they had made it part of their pagan worship, and, and it was highly encouraged to come and partake. Now, when I think of first century, and I think of Jesus walking around, and I think of perhaps maybe what you've watched on The Chosen, which I encourage, but with reservations, uh, is that is more of the Jewish culture. And the Jewish culture grounded in the Old Testament, and uh, they had a much more rigor around their sexual ethic. And they're not, not only are they not legalizing prostitution, they, as we believe that Adultery is wrong. Like, you should be monogamous. And so, within the bond of marriage. And as we, uh, and so God is interested and invested in our holiness and our purity. Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at this with Jesus at the, and this is his Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's from the Ten Commandments. 
But I, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is passionate about our purity. Jesus takes holiness seriously. Jesus equates the sin debt incurred by adultery and lustful looking as equal. Now, different consequences. Let's be clear. In in our world today, different consequences for those two. But from a heart sin debt perspective, he says these there's some equal ground here. And he says that the, in his next step to talk about this, the provisions that we should take in order to protect our purity, in order to maintain our holiness, is a mutilation. Cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, for those purity and holiness is so important that it is better for you to go without these if these are what are triggering you to sin. Truly, Jesus is passionate about purity. And some of the Corinthians thought they were pretty serious about purity as well, which is perhaps the underpinning of this statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Because the church here in Corinth had reacted to their culture, and particularly they had reacted in two extremes. We call these the libertines and the ascetics. Now, the libertines, you can see it in the word there, want to exercise Christian liberty. They say, all things are lawful for me as a Christian. And these are the ones that Paul's gone after here in the first six chapters. These are the ones that are uh, suing their brothers. These are the ones that are partaking of the temple prostitution. These are the ones that he goes in to talk about habitual sin and church discipline and that we should, uh, in a way, treat them as unbelievers because what they say and how they acted did not match up. But then in contrast to the libertines were the ascetics. They went to the other extreme against culture and began to implement rules that extended beyond Scripture. They felt they were taking a moral high ground, but in essence, they were setting themselves up for failure. I think one example of asceticism and the legalism that comes with it that's entered church culture perhaps in the past century is with respect to alcohol. So this is just for illustration here. Let me be clear that the Bible does not have a prohibition on the consumption of alcohol. However, we can recognize that alcohol and alcoholism and and drunkenness has devastating impacts. It has ruined homes and marriages and lives. And as a result, one might say, nothing good can come from alcohol. But when you say that, and when you begin to impose an extra-biblical prohibition on drinking, you may feel more holy because you don't partake. 
because you've abstained, and then you begin to judge others that do partake. And when you do this, you have fallen into a different kind of sin because you have called evil what God has called good. And that is what has happened here with the Corinthians. So this hasn't all been introduction. This has been foundational, trying to lead us in to understand where Paul is addressing them. So 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, technology is an amazing thing, but at this very moment, it is failing me. And I have notes, and if I stick to my notes, we'll get out of here much faster. But if my notes go astray, and this is why I always print them out, always except today, Ryan, I'm going to have to, okay. We're going to close the app and reload it and pray. It responds, praise the Lord. It'd be, it is to your benefit that I stay in my notes. <laughs> the ascetics in Corinth had said that because of the temptation of sexual immorality, people, all people, should just abstain from sex. And we would, of course, agree as it pertains to the unmarried. But however, they were making this application within the context of marriage. They were saying sex is bad in all circumstances. Married or unmarried, it should be avoided. This was calling evil what God had called good. And this was setting them up for failure. See, Jesus, as he is passionate about our purity, cut your hand off, pluck your eye out. Paul takes it no less seriously. Jesus recommends mutilation, but Paul, speaking as one here inspired by the Holy Spirit, has recommended a better way. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The word sexual immorality here, the King James might translate this as fornication, which is a word we don't hear in our world today. But it is the root of the word that is used for Pornography, pornonia, it had to do with all kinds of sexual sins. While not a comprehensive reading, it's not totally inaccurate here to say that because of the temptation to pornography, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul isn't using the language of have here as a way of saying that every man and woman should be married, that every man and woman should have a spouse. He isn't commanding that. Rather, he's saying that every married man and every married woman should have their own spouse. The next following verses make it even more clear that he's talking about this having in an intimate way. You didn't realize this perhaps when you gave your wedding vows, if you took the vows from the classic uh, book of common prayer, to have and to hold, that that perhaps is originating from this text and from a man should uh, leave his, mother, his father and mother and should 
hold fast, and in that holding fast, they shall become one flesh. So while Jesus is passionate about our purity, we rejoice that God has made provision for our passions. Our sexuality is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. My, it's not working. I need to close. I'm just going to close every other app that I have, people. Why can't I go old school and use paper? I was surprised how many apps I had open. Does that, does that happen to you guys? I'm going to get back to you. God has provided, God has made provision for our passions. Uh, sexuality, good thing, good godly thing in the right context. Specifically, God has designed marriage in a way for our sexuality to have its appropriate expression. Uh, I didn't write it in here, but I was going to use the illustration. Uh, you think of, anybody, anybody here ever played tennis? I've never played pickleball. I don't know how pickleball works. But on tennis, if you think about a tennis court, you have your bounds, what's in bounds, what's out of bounds. And uh, there's a line for what is out of bounds. But the reality is when you're on the court, there are two lines uh, for what is out of bounds because one of them comes into effect when you're playing doubles. So when you start playing doubles in life, when you have that covenant of marriage, there are certain things, there's a certain area that was out of bounds beforehand that is now in play. And so that, I would say, specifically here, relating to sex. God has made provision for our passions. God has given us Sexual expression and a way to protect us from the temptations to sexual sin. Marriage is a gift from God. This is illustrated in verse 7. I wish, Paul says, that all were as I am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul, we understand, as a single man. We don't know if Paul was ever married. There's speculation based on the role that he had in the Jewish leadership that he might have been married, but he here clarifies he is a single man, and uh, he identifies it as a preferred state for him, but, and he says each has a gift. The word in language here around gifting is what we see later in chapters 12, 13, 14, around spiritual gifts. Not saying marriage is a spiritual gift, you wouldn't put it on a list of spiritual gifts, but it's still in that same language here, and I would see these two gifts as marriage and celibacy. Now, I, Paul doesn't use the word celibacy. I like to use that word instead of singleness because I don't want to talk about the gift of singleness because there are some who are single and say, I don't want that gift, right? Uh, and so, but, what it, but when we talk about this perhaps from a celibacy standpoint, it seems that God has gifted some single people in a way that supernaturally protects them from the natural temptations towards sexual immorality. I knew I wasn't gifted in such a way, but there may be those in this room who have and, and 
have recognized they have such a gifting. I will tell you there are none in this room today who are gifted with both marriage and celibacy. All right? He says you will have one of the gifts, one or the other. Paul is teaching here that abstinence is a good thing for the unmarried and is a bad thing within marriage. It is unhealthy. It leads to temptation. It is not God's design. And I'll tell you, this is a problem today. Folks, this is the worst I've ever had with technology, and uh, Satan's in this place and doesn't want us to hear the word of God, but uh, I mean, keep having to kill this app and find where I, where I want to be. This is a problem today. Uh, one of the challenges in getting reliable data about sex is that people lie. Did you know that? I know that surprises you. But uh, Seth Stevens David, Davidowitz is a gentleman, he's a researcher and an analyst, and in writing for the New York Times, he shared some insight from Google search data. So take it for what it's worth, this is what people on Google are searching about. On Google, the top complaint about marriage is not having sex. Searches for sexless marriage are three and a half times more, com more common than unhappy marriage, eight times more common than loveless marriage. There are 16 times more complaints about a, a spouse not wanting to have sex than about a married partner not willing to talk. Complaints about husbands and wives, roughly equal. Now, Google doesn't have a Christian, non-Christian filter, but I think it's safe to assume that if this is impacting our culture, then it has entered the lives of believers. So what does the Bible have to say? He says, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Pause. Now, when Paul says that to the Corinthian culture, he wasn't shocking. They're like, yep, that makes sense. The man has authority over the woman. That's what makes sense. This is what they'd expected to hear. But then Paul gets revolutionary and says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This would have been earth-shattering in that first century Corinthian culture. But we can rejoice today how God values women. And we believe that all people are created in the image of God with value, dignity, and worth. We believe that men and women are different and designed to complement one another. And marriage is a beautiful picture and application of that. Paul continues, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a season, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we've said that Jesus is passionate about our purity. God has provided, made provision for our passions. And so pursue perpetual passion. This is the charge to our married people today. It is God's design and desire for married people to have a regular pattern of coming together in the physical union of becoming one flesh. We can rejoice that doing so is beneficial for our health. We can celebrate that it can bring us happiness. But we must recognize that God has designed this as a means of protecting our holiness. Husbands and wives gifted with marriage, with that bond of marriage, 
they are gifted with this sexual expression. Paul identifies that there's some sort of co-ownership going on here over each other's body. Just as Paul tells the church in Ephesus that husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. There's some legal language in this passage. We have this reference to conjugal rights. We also have the command, do not deprive one another. The word deprive, it's the same word used in chapter 6 to, that's translated defraud. Uh, it, means, it means literally to cheat someone of what is rightfully theirs. In a sense, you owe it to each other to be regularly engaged in the pattern of marital intimacy. So, we have to acknowledge that Paul, though, outlines the opportunity for a break. Do not deprive one another except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But come together again so that you may not tempt you, Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We'll call this a pause on passion for prayer. I had to get creative around this because it's a challenging subject, so, you know, hopefully humor can help a little bit as well. Paul outlines three criteria here for taking a break. Number one, it's by mutual agreement, by agreement. Number two, it is a limited time. And number three, its purpose is so that you can turn your attention to other spiritual matters, namely prayer. But to be faithful to the text, Paul gives us verse 6. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. The premise of taking the break is not a command. At this point, that's the text. Now I want to give you some practical application. First and foremost, as good theologians, I want to uh, remind and reiterate, we need to search all of scriptures to form our theology. First Corinthians can help us understand God's design for marriage in this particular area, but we need to look much broader to understand God's big picture about marriage. And there are books and books written about this, and we can see this from much you're not going to get a theology of marriage in one message anyway. Paul is addressing a specific concern, a very valid one, but he's not trying to be comprehensive. I want to say a word on mutuality. Too much of the teaching of marriage from the past generation has been very male-centric. The purity culture beginning in the 90s had a truly negative effect on uh, the lives of many married Christians, particularly in their view of women. Particularly this pressure we put on women as temptresses and how they must be careful in that respect. Uh, rather than holding men accountable, and so women have been led to be guilty for their own desires. So we need to be careful in this space. And there's some good books. If you want to come, I've got some recommendations around how we can reor reorient our thinking here biblically. These are some practical tips and advice. Here's one for you. Put your phone down. There is a ton of research of how phones in the bedroom are impacting the health of our relationships. It's not just with, with respect to this particular thing we're talking about. Uh, culture has coined new words around this uh, such as 
fubbing. You ever, ever heard this? This is like snubbing someone because you are paying more attention to your phone. There is a, another word, technoference, and how technology begins to interfere with the way we relate to one another when it comes between our relationships. Other research has shown that, and this is specifically done with men, I'm sure that women are the same, there, that men who game more than an hour a day are less interested in sex. A researcher from San Diego State University points out uh, that there are many more choices of things for us to do in the late evening than there once were, and fewer opportunities to initiate sexual activity if both partners are engrossed in social media, electronic gaming, or binge watching. So don't let this modern convenience, right, don't let this come between you and your soulmate or you and other real people in this world, right? Let us not become a slave to our devices. More practical advice. When it comes to the sexual advances of your spouse, there are three ways in which you can respond. Rejection. You can say no. Reluctance. You can say yeah, but make it clear it's not a mutual yes. And rejoicing, which is not just a yes, but a oh yes. Now, after I conferred with some counsel on this, I was offered a fourth option, which is really an extension of rejection, right? There are many ways in which you can say no. There's a difference between saying nope and saying there's nothing more that I would rather do than to spend this special time together. But I really just can't do it. And here's why. Like, and give some why. And in this case, perhaps, we can add a fourth R for reschedule. Make an intentional plan. Rain check. There's, your, uh, there's another R for you. <laughs> but in our rejection... Listen, this is where this is important because this is what the scripture is teaching us here. In our rejection, we need to be mindful that we are turning our spouse over to Satan. In our rejection, in our rejection, are we affirming our partner's holiness? Are we so if we must say no, how do we affirm them in a way that continually equips them toward potential temptations? Two more practical, practical advices here. Bargaining. Like, another area that needs correction is leveraging sex as a bargaining tool. The implication is, in this text, strictly forbids that. It's neither reward or withdrawal based on something. Now, you, there are, there are times like that you're just not in a right place with one another, and you should get those things, that conflict. We, to go back two weeks, you got conflict resolution. Go listen to that message. Implement those things. Resolve conflict. Lastly, it's a, it's a rare thing for two people, married people, to come together in the bond of marriage with equal desire. Uh, it's, and it's not unusual for desires to grow and wane over years and seasons. So if you're here today and this is an area of conflict in your marriage, particularly if you are the one who feels rejected more often, uh, 
Ryan was kind enough to print the pages out, but now I got to get them in the right. I mean, I'm sure he put them in the right order. I'm just losing it. But if you're the one who feels rejected more often, this message is not a way to weaponize. This isn't a way for you to go towards uh, your spouse, to hold it over them in any way. In fact, you need to continue to abide all the other advice given to you with respect to marriage. That we would, particularly, I, I love the passage that we say, to outdo one another in showing honor. And before we would ever attempt to judge another believer of any respect, that we take a long, hard look in the mirror. And, you know, while rejection can be hurtful and defeating, and while the text does teach us that it might make our temptations greater, you and you alone are accountable for your holiness. There is no pointing the finger at someone else. Blame shifting our sin to our spouse is the oldest trick in the book. Is that woman you gave me, Adam says to God. But it is Adam who is accountable for his own sin. Before I close, I want to focus briefly for those who are not married. If you are unwed and not particularly interested in marriage, perhaps you have the gift of celibacy and in this you should rejoice. There's a freedom in that situation to pursue the things of God with a more singular focus. We'll see this next week a little bit uh, as we continue in chapter 7. Pastor Brent will be back in the seat. Uh, but if you do have a desire to be married but aren't currently, that's a good thing. But your journey may be more challenging in this area of purity and holiness. So consider, my recommendation, consider spiritual disciplines. Uh, these are tools that you can put into your tool belt for the fight for purity and holiness. And particularly, I have found great benefit in fasting. Uh, it seems strange in today's world, except for uh, intermittent fasting, from a dietary standpoint, that like, seems to be all the rage. But true fasting with a focus on the things of God uh, through this mastering the primal desire of hunger, uh, you can see that that will extend those willpower benefits outside of, of hunger. And while this... so. In closing, while our text this morning is, is direct and specific about a particular aspect of the marital relationship, I think it's helpful to acknowledge that there are those here today who have experienced abuse at the hands of someone else's sexual sin. We grieve. We hurt for you. And we pray for all the restoration that is possible. If you are here today and this is your first time at fellowship, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please come back next week. But if you're here today and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, understand that marriage is a picture of what Christ has done for us and how he has given himself sacrificially for us, that he has given his life for your ability to be restored to a relationship with God through the forgiveness of your sins and as well as his righteousness placed in you on your behalf. For the rest of us, may you be equipped with ongoing righteousness and protected from the temptation as we pursue 
holiness. God commands us, be ye holy as I am holy. Let's pray. Lord, I rejoice in your word and particularly that even in these challenging areas, you, you give us instruction. It's like we don't have to be left hanging out there wondering, but yet you guide us and teach us. And so while this has been sometimes a, a challenging on my part in studying and delivery, and perhaps challenging in the hearing or, or confusing, Lord, that you would bring clarity, that you would bring hope, that you would bring renewal. Lord, our marriages are so important as it pertains to the core of the family unit. May our kids this morning, from infant to adult, see their parents as a loving and imitating Christ in all ways within their relationship to one another. And Lord, in the ways that we need to be challenged, may you challenge us. And then may you, by your Holy Spirit, equip us to make us effective. Lord, as a husband, help me to love my wife as you have loved the church, that I would be sacrificial to the point of death in my care and affection and love and provision. I pray that for all of our husbands this morning. Pray for wisdom as we continue down this path. Lord, we, we look to Jesus and all the hope that he is for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing, we're going to respond and celebrate the holiness of our God today. Uh, Brian will be down here. Uh, our pastor's not. I'm going to be over here on the guitar, but we're uh, we're going to sing and respond to God. Would you stand?